Hello everyone, and welcome to The Good Beans, a wholesome, silly, nerdy fancast on media and other fun stuff that just makes me, your regular millennial, genuinely happy. Um, I'm Fulvi Paragon, and um, this is going to be an experimental first episode just to see how this goes. So, who am I? I write a lot of fanfiction, and I do a, lot, a bit of art, a bit of crochet, a little bit of arts and crafts, so uh, you can probably find me through my stories or on Tumblr or AO3 or uh, fanfic.net. Um, I really, really like creative things, and I also really like sharing things that I like. I really like video games and manga and anime, music, uh, literature, and just anything creative is really what makes me happy. Uh, for years, friends have been asking me to do something like this just to put all of my, my thoughts somewhere because I always have so much to say when I find something that makes me really happy. And so they always have told me that uh, it makes them happy to listen, but it's so much that they have a hard time keeping up. Um, so they've been bugging me as of late to make a podcast so they could actually hear it all. And so I would have somewhere to put all of my random ideas. So here is the test run of literally just wholesome content. Uh, the title is, it was a suggestion from someone to essentially uh, talk about just like spilling the beans about my good soft beans, uh, the things that make me really, really happy um, for in regards to like little nerdy media. Um, if you hear shuffling or something, I'm currently just like making stuff and drawing, so uh, it is probably going to be a little noisy, and for that I apologize, this is very much a test run, and I have never done this before, so I hope you enjoy. The topic for today, how are we going to begin this? After asking around, the unanimous decision was to talk about Kingdom Hearts. So Kingdom Hearts is a series that is really near and dear to my heart. I've played it since it was first created in the early 2000s. And so today I'm going to be discussing things that make me happy about Kingdom Hearts 2, which is my favorite entry in the series. And for a really long time, it was actually in my top 10 games. I think for about a decade, it was just my favorite game of all time. It really, really left a long impact on me. So today we're going to be talking about that a little. And I hope it's I hope it's interesting. We'll see. Debatable. I have no idea how this is going to work. But I have a couple of notes. Let's see if I remember to actually look up and read them. Okay, so Kingdom Hearts 2. What is it? For those of you who have not played, you do not need to play it in order to understand this. Um, at least in general, I hope I'll be able to give some kind of rambling explanation. It might be a little incoherent, but I am just a little incoherent as a person in general, so you should get used to this. Um, so Kingdom Hearts 2 is an action JRPG that was released in 2006 on the PlayStation 2. Um, in regards to the mechanics themselves, it essentially uh, followed it, it was a linear story, essentially. You played as a character named Sora who uh, traveled across different worlds. Um, this game series is a collaboration between Square, Squaresoft and now Square Enix and uh, Disney. So you actually meet all of the Disney characters, you go to different Disney worlds, and you also uh, meet Final Fantasy characters from, you know, the Final Fantasy series. And um, the people who are interfacing with all of these are original Kingdom Hearts characters. So, um... First off, the place where Kingdom Hearts 2 really shines for me is not the 
gameplay itself, so I'll just kind of gloss over what I liked about the gameplay. I just thought it was genuinely fun. I never had any issues with it. I think it was really intuitive. It's really easy to get into. Um, the There were different forms that you can use because Sora had very special clothes and he could um, use these different forms. And I thought that was just really fun. It was really cool. It was really unique. And it felt like the change up in gameplay, which was needed for each level, but um, it never felt overwhelming and it never overstayed its welcome. So for that, I was really happy. My, um, what was overwhelming were the mini games. There are a million and one mini games to play in this game. Um, and you just always felt like you had to get the highest score in order to pass the trials or like get the little stickers in your um, journal. But I never really cared too much about them. The ones that I liked, I really, really enjoyed. And I remember sinking a lot of time into them. So I think that's really fun. Um, but the, my favorite thing was probably, in regards to gameplay, was probably reaction commands. I just thought they were really fun. They were these little uh, options uh, during battles um, where when you were fighting specific enemies, you could perform very specific movesets and spectacles. And a lot of it was like spectacle fighting. It was really over the top and really grandiose and completely impractical. But it was so rewarding to be able to use reaction commands properly and, and get it done. and just take out enemies so efficiently one of the pivotal moments in the game i guess i guess in gameplay one of the most memorable moments is um the thousand uh, heartless battle where you're essentially tasked with destroying a thousand monsters and you're in this giant canyon and there's this never-ending slew of monsters coming towards you and so you can use reaction commands to whittle them down so much faster and i just remember that fight so vividly it came out this game came out in 2006, y'all, and I still remember it so vividly from like the feeling of first playing that game and and experiencing this. It was really, really fun. Um, in regards to... Um, and the other fight, I think, that really cements reaction commands is something that I really wish the game's series had kept in the same way, because they have evolved it over the years, but I feel like in Kingdom Hearts 2 it was always my favorite. Um, it was the fight against Twilight Thorn, which is this giant um, husk of a nobody that uh, you attack, that you have to fight kind of in the first few hours of the game. And it was just a spectacle and a half. It was so engaging fighting that enemy. It was so uncomfortable and low-key. It might have given me nightmares when I was a little kid because <laughs> when I was, you know, when I was younger, when I was playing it, just because it, it was so grotesque and the way it moves is so unnatural, but the reaction commands really added that extra layer of just fan the fantastical on that so I really enjoyed it but let's talk about the story because the story is kind of where all my heart and soul goes into when talking about this game so in order to understand the story of this one you kind of have to have some background for Kingdom Hearts 1 so giant spoilers for the entire Kingdom Hearts series in general so if you haven't played it yet and you are thinking of playing it Oopsie poopsie, I don't know if this is the best thing for you to listen to right now, um, but I probably, once again, will be incoherent, so I don't think it'll really matter. In Kingdom Hearts 1, what happens is essentially a young man named Sora, the protagonist, he's 14 years old, he's separated from his two best friends, Riku and Kairi, when Riku is tricked by the game's main villain into opening the door to darkness to the world. So the world gets flooded by creatures made of darkness, and this darkness is formed from people's hearts, because everyone's heart has light and darkness in it. And so these monsters are known as the Heartless. They're mindless monsters that will essentially attack anyone with light in their heart, and they'll consume the light, 
and leave behind just the darkness and that will in turn propagate and create more darkness and more heartless. So Sora finds himself suddenly able to summon this weapon called a Keyblade, which he uses to fight the Heartless and lock the doors between the worlds and along with people's hearts, like it's this mystical giant key that he alone is able to use. So after his world is consumed, he ends up meeting Donald Duck and Goofy in a place called Traverse Town. So Donald Duck and Goofy um, were told by King Mickey to go find the key, uh, quote unquote, find the key and to protect this key. And they didn't know what that means, but they went to Traverse Town and they met Sora who can summon this giant key. So they decide to stick with Sora while Sora goes out to find his friends and restore the balance of the worlds, which are being overrun by the darkness. So eventually he finds out that his best friend Riku had basically been tricked into joining, you know, the side, the side of the villains, the darkness, and his other best friend and his very, very heteronormative love interest, Kairi, has lost her heart and is almost comatose. Is like, I say almost, she's essentially comatose. Um, he eventually finds out that Kairi's heart had been somehow put somehow hidden inside his own body and there's this whole explanation don't worry about it it's complicated so all you need to know is that he eventually realizes this and he sacrifices himself in order to save her he stabs himself with the keyblade to separate his heart from his body because when he separates his heart from his body Kyrie's heart is separated from his body as well and so Kyrie's heart is free to go back to her own body and wake her up so he saves Kyrie like this and he himself is turned into a heartless by this action um, she saves him by the power of uh, hugging him. There's like this whole thing, like the power of light and whatnot. It's fine. Don't worry about it. So <laughs> together they, they save Riku, who has been possessed by the game's true villain, this very like evolved heartless known as Anson, the Seeker of Darkness. Um, his goal was to open the door to darkness and flood the worlds, all the worlds, with heartless, essentially. So Sora, King Mickey, and Riku use their Keyblade, because King Mickey and Riku also have like their own Keyblades, um, to seal the door to darkness, but Mickey and Riku sacrifice themselves by locking it from, from the inside of the Realm of Darkness, while Sora stays on the outside with um, Donald and Goofy. So they restore the world order by locking this door, and Kairi ends up going home to their saved, you know, islands, their restored islands, um, the Destiny Islands, and Sora has a choice. He can go home too, or he can stay away from the Destiny Islands for a while longer and try to find Riku. So he decides to go find Riku, his best friend, and Donald and Goofy come along to save Mickey. So that's kind of how the uh, Kingdom Hearts 1 ends, um, and that's the game. So the history of the game is kind of important to understand why this first bit is really important to me. So um, this game originally came out on the PlayStation 2. Kingdom Hearts 1 came out on the PlayStation 2 as well. And it was released, I believe, in 2003 in North America. You can tell that I have not looked up dates and things. This is just going off my memory. But um, there was a three-year gap, essentially, between number one and number two. And so back then, you know, three-year turnarounds between uh, in one series was a fairly long time, considering how in the 90s there had been like a new Final Fantasy game almost every year. So people were pretty stoked when Kingdom Hearts 2 came out, because um, we were finally going to be able to see what happened to Riku and you know start playing as Sora again and go on this you know fun, lighthearted adventure with like a little bit of character growth, but mostly just Disney shenanigans. It was going to be fine. The thing is, when you start playing Kingdom Hearts 2, you're not playing as Sora. In the intro, intro cutscene, you see all of these people you don't know who weren't in Kingdom Hearts 1, 
and these new characters and then at the end of it Sora goes to sleep and there's this random blonde who's shown and you're like who is this person I don't understand but you start playing as this blonde and his name is Roxas and Sora's nowhere to be found so you find out that Roxas is like this normal kid who lives in this place called Twilight Town and he is you know spending his last week of summer vacation with his friends avoiding homework going on adventures whatnot um, and it's all chill, you know, he has three best friends and there should be no issues, right? Except he's having these dreams of Sora's adventures from the first game. So where the hell is Sora? That's the big question that probably hit everyone. And that, that definitely hit me when I started playing number two and I was like, who the hell is this person? <laughs> like, I don't know him. So no one actually knew at the time when it was released that there was actually another Kingdom Hearts game that had already been released. It was called Chain of Memories and it was released for the Game Boy Advance at the time, I believe. So it was the direct sequel to Kingdom Hearts 1 and it showed Sora after, you know, he closed the door to darkness and he vowed to find Riku and Mickey. He and Donald and Goofy found their way to this place called Castle Oblivion, where they, um, which was being used as the headquarters for this new foe, um, Organization 13. So while he's traversing this castle, his memories are tampered with by a girl named Namine, but eventually he bests the members of the organization who are stationed there, and Namine apologizes to Sora and because she feels so bad for messing with his memories, and so she promises to put his memories back into the right order. And the only problem is, is that it'll take some time. So he's put into a really long coma, essentially, so Namine can fix him and Donald and Goofy's memories. But... You know, he can't be making new ones while she's trying to fix the old ones, so he goes to sleep for a really long time. What he doesn't know is that Riku is also in this castle. He arrived in the basement, he just kind of woke up there from the darkness, and um, he um, is already asleep by the time, you know, Riku arrives at the top of this castle. Riku arrives at the top of the castle, and he, only to find that Sora has already been put to sleep, and he's heartbroken um, and we'll talk about Riku later because he is one of my favorite characters and he brings me such joy just by existing because he's a good being he's a very good boy um, so like when Riku um, so so when we play as Roxas we don't know who he is but over the first like few hours of the game we're given this like idyllic life of just being a teenager in this small sleepy wholesome town hanging out with our friends and having part-time jobs and trying to plan trips to the beach and participating in town tournaments and it's really sweet but something is inherently wrong he's been having these dreams of Sora like I mentioned and these weird creatures keep appearing in town and he keeps seeing things that no one else does and he feels like he's losing his mind um and so people start appearing in the town to talk to him. One of them being this man, you know, this young man named Axel, who is a proper adult, he's in his, you know, early 20s, who keeps saying he's an ally to Roxas and that they're friends, but he shows up wearing this black trench coat and saying all these random things. And so like, we can't trust him when he appears. And there's this other guy and completely covered in bandages. And it's just, there's so much intrigue at the start of this game where we, the player, are just absolutely baffled by what's happening. And so as he goes through these last few days of his summer vacation, and as he starts realizing that something is deeply, deeply wrong, he finally meets Namine, and he speaks to her properly. And you, like the player, finally understand a bit of what's happening, because you probably didn't have the context of Chain of Memories when you played this game. 
So in the first game, when Sora's heart was separated from his body, um, because he was had a strong heart, his body was left behind. Um, it didn't disappear into nothing, the way that most people's bodies disappear. And so this body took on a new image, essentially. It was like a new identity. Um, this new person that was created, that was left behind, was given the name Roxas by this organization made of similar husks, similar people who were left behind when their hearts turned into heartless. And so these type of people are called nobodies. So once Roxas learns the truth about this, he's basically told over and over again that he's worthless and that he never grew up in this town and that he's living a lie and that he's currently in like this virtual reality simulation where they basically hid his consciousness and his body they digitized him and put him into this virtual reality um in order that's filled with all these ais based on the real people who live in the real twilight town and it was in order to hide him from the real organization um, because he used to be a member of the organization and so it's baffling for Roxas because like you really get to watch him start to crumble and he like loses his identity because he's being told that everything is not real everything he thinks is normal is not but everyone seems to tell him that he's worthless because the person they really need is Sora and not him that kid from his dreams is the one who matters not him he doesn't deserve to exist and it's horrifying and so eventually Roxas realizes who he is. He was the most recent member of Organization 13, and Axel, that guy who he met, that redhead, really was his best friend and his mentor. So when you have to fight Axel at the end of this introduction sequence, it's gutting because with very few scenes, one thing that they do so well is that they establish, even though we didn't know who Axel was before, if you haven't played Chain of Memories, they establish so quickly that Axel genuinely has so much care for Roxas and he's so worried about Roxas's well-being. And so to watch him, watch Roxas fight Axel is really heartbreaking because he's so genuine and you can see that Axel's also been burned too many times by relationships. He's so hesitant when he speaks and he's so scared of losing Roxas. And so he, he you know, just begs him to listen to him and come back to the organization. And so when Roxas betrays him, it's really, it's really awful. But by the end of this opening sequence, Roxas, who is basically the reason why they need him to disappear, is because his body holds the final memories needed to piece together Sora and to wake Sora back up. Um, he's essentially coerced into giving up his life, into essentially killing himself. And it's a beautiful scene. The way they do it, it's so haunting. This music is amazing. It's, it's crushing. It's crushing because he steps forward and he just looks up at Sora who's asleep and he just says, you're lucky, Sora. It looks like my summer vacation is over. And he never gets to enjoy that last day of summer vacation. All he wanted was that week. Cause, um, and to see this child, he's like 15, to see this kid so desperately want some kind of normalcy in his life and to be denied that over and over again is so heart-wrenching and it's so gutting because by the end, like, I don't know about other people, but I felt so guilty for ever wanting Sora back because Roxas was a good character and I genuinely really liked him and so to watch him have to give himself up is so sad and, it's, and I really like sad things 
Yeah, I really like well-written tragedy and like this really felt right, even when I was younger playing it. So then there's a complete tonal shift because Sarah wakes up and is suddenly super fucking happy <laughs> and it's babbling. And it really, that complete tonal shift really supports this idea that even unwittingly, Sor himself does not think that Roxas is worth any time and any grief. He doesn't know that Roxas exists at the beginning, though, and so, you know, he doesn't mean to do this, but as the game progresses and as he learns about Roxas and about nobodies and about what happened to him, the idea that Roxas is worthless is slowly changed in Sora, and Sora, you know, grows and starts to realize that even though Roxas was originally a part of him, Roxas isn't the same as him, and so he deserves to be his own person, and he deserves to be an individual and to be respected as an individual. And the way they do that is really wonderful. So just that introduction, that complete tonal shift. But the thing is, like, even though me as the player, like, I felt so guilty about wanting Sora back at the beginning, I was still really happy to have him back. I felt like the game was really beginning again, you know? Like, it really felt like it, it was back in gear, and the way that they, they did that, and the way that they set us back on that trail of, okay, so Sora wakes up and he doesn't remember, he doesn't remember anything that happened in Castle Oblivion, and so he thinks that he left off right at the end of Kingdom Hearts 1, just like all the players um, who didn't play Chain of Memories. So, you know, we, like Sora, are starting this adventure to try and find Riku and Mickey again. And so it's, it, it was just really well done, the parallels between us as the, the player experiencing this journey and, you know, not really having that full picture of who Roxas is, but still learning to understand and appreciate Roxas as a character. And then how Sora, you know, lost his entire memory of Castle Oblivion and learned to respect and appreciate Roxas and the other nobodies as individuals. Um, but still, you know, being happy that the journey was beginning, but also being sad at having lost something. You know, even if we can't put that into words, it is just it's a moment in the series which has never really been repeated. But that that sense of a bittersweet loss is really well done. So I really, really love that one. I really, really love that part of it. Other things that are really good in this game. The Twilight Town Gang um, basically consists of everyone who lives in the real Twilight Town whose AIs we were interacting with in the beginning of the game. They are genuinely endearing, and I adore everything about them. They're absolutely wonderful. They make me so genuinely happy. Um, there's a scene when Sora wakes up. He's in like the real world. He's not in this virtual reality, and but he's still in Twilight Town. So he, he leaves, and he meets all these other characters who we've been hanging out with. But in real life, the characters don't know Roxas, right? And so they're just confused as to why their hearts kind of recognize Sora and you know they feel like they've met before but they don't know each other and Roxas somewhere in Sora's heart Roxas like is calling out to his friends but he he can't say anything and it's it's just really upsetting to see how it works but eventually Sora has to leave you know to pursue Riku and Mickey his friends from Twilight Town they see him off and that scene makes me cry every single time because you can see just how much Roxas cares about these people even though they've never really met. They matter the world to him and he to them and his, their connection is really pure. I really like the, twi I like the setting of Twilight Town 
more than Destiny Islands in the first game. There's just so much more personality in the town with all of the other characters. You get to see actual adults who exist in the town, as boring as they may be. We also get some of the more underappreciated Final Fantasy characters, because um, one was really mainstream. One was really like Final Fantasy 7, 8, and 10. And like, that's fine. You know, they're good games. I like them. I love Final Fantasy games. But Vivi and Setzer are two of my favorite Final Fantasy characters of all time in, you know, the original 10 Final Fantasy games. And so, and like, I also don't hate Rai and Raijin and Fujin from 8. And I think Cypher is just like the biggest, most butthurt loser, like in the best way. I think he's hilarious. Every time I see him, he makes me laugh in, the, in Final Fantasy 8. So to see them all in Twilight Town made me so much happier than just to see, you know, Titus and Waka and Selfie in um, in Destiny Islands, especially to see them have like actually like so much personality. That's so that really came from the original games, whereas I feel like the the ones in the in Kingdom Hearts One were more they're more out of character. I feel so I really like the ones in in the second game. Um, yeah, Twilight Town gang always. Every time I got to go to Twilight Town in Kingdom Hearts 3, I was so excited because they were my favorite parts. I was so happy to just be there and to hang out with Hainer, Pence, and Olette and to, to hold up the little gem and look at the sunlight. Oh, it was so sweet. It makes me so happy. Um, okay. Whole dynamic between Riku and Sora throughout this game. Oh my goodness, it's so good. So um, the relationship between Riku and Sora has always been best friends, right? They've always been best friends since they were little kids. Um, when they were little, we learn in later games that, you know, when they were little, Riku promised to always protect Sora. And, you know, Sora looks up to Riku like nothing else. You know, he adores Riku. He respects Riku so much because Riku was always that kid who could do everything. He was kind of Sora's hero. So going into the game, most people going, I mean, going into Kingdom Hearts 2, most people didn't know what happened to Riku. We find out way later in other games what happened and that, you know, when he arrived in Castle Oblivion, he was extremely depressed. He felt such guilt because of what he did. Um, even by accident, he feels so responsible for the harm that he's brought in the, in the world and for opening the door to darkness and for doing all these things that he didn't understand the ramifications of, but, you know, he really was still responsible in, in a way. Um, I don't blame him. I don't think anyone blames him. None of the characters blame him. He was a kid. He was 15. He didn't know what was happening, but he blames himself. And it kind of gets to a point where he's saying, I should just stay in the darkness. Like I shouldn't be allowed to find happiness anymore. And he's very, very depressed. But um, eventually he manages to find the strength with the help of Mickey. He eventually finds the strength to fight his way through Castle Oblivion and to climb up out of the basement levels eventually to find Sora sleeping at the top. And so when he realizes that Sora is vulnerable, but Sora is still the one who controls the Keyblade, he basically decides that he is going to sacrifice everything this time to protect Sora. Because Sora was the one who fixed his mistake, and so he wants to protect Sora this time, because Sora was the one who saved him. But he isn't strong enough to protect Sora. So what he does is he essentially gives up his own being and his own self and allows himself to be halfway possessed by the um, by the villain of the first game, by that heartless who had possessed him, Ansem, Seeker of Darkness. He gives up his physical form and his voice and 
so much of who he is in order to protect Sora while Sora is in this coma and while Namine is putting him back together again. And he didn't think he would ever be able to be, he didn't think he would ever be able to go back to being Riku. But for the rest of the game, Riku is looking out for Sora. He wears a cloak to hide his face, but he, you know, leaves little clues for Sora. And when Sora is lost, he leaves hints so that Sora can find his way. And he protects him when, you know, things are going south. And he just makes sure that he can really take care of his best friend forever. And so eventually they have a reunion at the end of the game and it makes me cry every single time. It's so good the way that they do it. He and Kairi, Kairi figures out who he is. And so Kairi is the one who tells Sora like, hey, this isn't Ansem. Please just trust me, close your eyes, look at who this is. And so when Sora and Kairi reunite, they hug and it's fine, I guess, whatever. But like Sora always knew that Kairi was kind of safe was was relatively taken care of because she was back on the islands um so when they are reunited even though he knows that Kyrie had been briefly in danger recently like right before their reunion um he's not as worried but when he sees riku and realizes that this person who looks like his old enemy is actually his best friend he falls to his knees and he clutches onto riku's hand and for the first time, this kid who has been so flat and happy for so much of this, of the first two games, breaks down into tears and he starts sobbing and he's like, I looked for you everywhere. Why didn't you say anything? Like, why didn't you let me know you were okay? And it's so heartwarming to see their relationship blossom in this way. And it's like, Loki, I, I ship them so hard. <laughs> I love them so much. They're so cute. But eventually they managed to, it's kind of an accident, but they managed to figure out, they don't figure out anything. What am I talking about? Because of an accident, Riku ends up getting his original form back. And he doesn't think he deserves it. He thinks he should just wallow in the darkness forever. But at the end of the game, those two are the only ones left. Everyone else has been sent to safety, but those two are trapped in the realm of darkness, on the shores, and, you know, they're together, and Riku thinks this is where he dies, <laughs> he doesn't have the right to have any happiness, but Sora looks him in the eye and says, hey, we'll go together, like, you're not alone anymore, like, I'm not letting you go on your own, and the moment where Riku realizes that he doesn't have to sacrifice himself anymore, and that he's not alone and they'll figure this out together and that he's still worthy of love and care is absolutely wonderful because he's this 16 year old kid who's been through hell and back and he just wants you know he just wants his friends back and to get that validation is so well done it's so well done it makes me so happy kind of moving on or i guess moving along that point about sora crying we can kind of look at um, the next point I have, which is like the sense of growth that we experience and the genuine character development for Sora that I think honestly kind of peaked in Kingdom Hearts 2. In game one, he was like this happy kid who kept, you know, having these big brain moments randomly. And it was like the strangest experience to see it all because he would suddenly, you know, make the most bizarre statements like Kyrie's inside me. God. Just, that it haunts me. 
it just haunts me. It's so not good. <laughs> but he was just always so happy-go-lucky and always ready to meet people and be their friend. And he, he didn't really show a huge range of emotions. Whereas in number two, he generally, genuinely starts building solid empathy for others. And he reflects a ton and he thinks a ton. And while he's still kind of an idiot, <laughs> he's not the brightest one in the bunch, he grows so much and he becomes such a good person that has you know genuine facets to him and you know you might be able to say that that's because of Roxas's presence in his heart because Roxas everyone says that Roxas has always been a lot more angry than Sora and so when Sora really starts to show that anger and show that frustration and show these like genuine breaking points where he won't put up with shit anymore it's really compelling to see him change and be so emotive in a way that feels human rather than being so um, two-dimensional and just so cheery all the time. And then when he cries, when he's reunited with Riku, like we can see how genuine that heartache is, just how true and real it is. And it really paints the picture of this kid who's been so overwhelmed and so tired of everything and just wants to go home and wants to be with his friends. And it makes him seem so much more real than this caricature he kind of returns to being for the rest of the series. So I, I just, I love his character growth within this installment. Um, if we're kind of taking a look away from the protagonists and look at the villains, let's talk about the organization. Um, I love the organization, all of them, including the ones who are taken out in Castle Oblivion, but here let's just talk about the ones who are in Kingdom Hearts 2 themselves. So Xemnas is a cool big bad. I like his voice acting. I like his vibe. I like how at the end he seems genuinely mournful that his plan didn't work. He seems like a man who really has lost everything, and it... I wouldn't say he's sympathetic, but it makes him a lot more interesting than... I think Ansem Seeker of Darkness, who was very cartoonish, who was very much, you know, fill me with the power of darkness, submit. <laughs> like, <laughs> Billy Zane did a great job voice acting that character, but he was a lot less compelling, I think, than Xemnas, who I felt was far more interesting, despite how slowly and deliberately he talked. Oh boy, cutscenes took a long time with him. Number two in the organization is Zigbar. Zigbar is hilarious. He has now become like this incredibly convoluted, confusing character. He's actually Lushu, spoiler alert, but like, it's just, I, I miss the simple days where he was just this smart aleck, kind of like an audience surrogate at times who would just say just the things that I was thinking. And he was really fun. He had a really great personality. He was just so engaging and he was a sniper with his really cool powers. And his fight was really cool because you could like intercept his bullets. And um, it was just, it was a really cool, cool villain with a lot of attitude and a lot of personality with his eye patch and that scar across his face. It was really neat. Um, third in the organization was Zaldin. I hate Zaldin. Um, I, I, I hate him, but I also have a fondness for him because the first time I played this game in 2006, I could not beat him in, in a beast's castle. I just struggled for like two weeks. I couldn't beat him and it made me so viscerally upset. I just didn't know what to do, but it's okay. We did it. We got through. Um, so I hate him because of that. Just like my, my child self continues to despise him, but um, my um, my adult self think he's thinks he's quite easy and he's not too much of a problem and his sideburns make me cackle because they're just so ugly. 
Um, the next person in the organization, the next number would be number seven. Um, that's Syx. And Syx, I'll talk more about Syx and Axel later. But um, Syx is such a good character. And I love his obsession with the moon. I love this like wolf-like berserker quality he has to him. I love how deliberate he is, how manipulative he is. Um, but also how at the end he is genuinely lost when he looks up at Kingdom Hearts and says, why am I not whole? <laughs> like he just wants to know because he's been fighting for so long and he doesn't know what to fight for anymore. And it, it feels so real and like you pity him, this poor piece of garbage. <laughs> A really interesting character. Um, then we have Axel, who is my favorite character in the entire series. Axel is just so good, so so good. The way we see his character start in the beginning of Kingdom Hearts 2 as this desperate man wanting his friend to be safe, and so he goads and tricks him because he's scared that the organization will kill him if he doesn't obey. It's just, it's such a realistic character, and it's also so much darker than anything we saw in the first game, and I really love that about it. Um, he is genuinely hurt when Roxas doesn't remember him. He like it just your heart goes out to him so easily even though he's this terrifying enemy your heart really goes out to him um because he he just wants his best friend to be safe and you can also see that he has become this man who will go so far beyond his morals in order to save the people he cares about like he hurts Kyrie, he kidnaps Kyrie two-thirds of the way through the game and he's doing it all for roxas's sake you know he has this plan to bring roxas back in order to turn sora into a heartless but it's so upsetting when you realize just how alone he feels and when you think of it like that like it's such a well-written character like even beyond this game in the future games i wouldn't say kingdom hearts 3 but like the other games building up to that he he really does continue to be such a well-written character um and then at the end when he sacrifices himself for sora because you know, he can see the parts of Roxas which have come through in Sora's personality and he can't bear to hurt anything that resembles Roxas because Roxas just matters so much to him. It's honestly the sweetest. It's so wholesome and endearing and I adore it. Um, we'll go back to Axel in a second, but first off, Demix, what a gem. What a treasure. I love him. He's great. He's phenomenal. He makes me so happy. What an idiot. I just, Demix. He's great. Dance, water, dance. I will hang out with him any day. I want him to be my friend. He's such a fun character. Um, Luxord. Luxord's a cool dude. I just think he has a lot of attitude. He's got a cool swag, you know? He's got a cool demeanor. Um, I'm curious to see what his role will be in future games, um, but I think I really liked seeing how he interacted with everyone in um, Pirates of the Caribbean. <laughs> It was such a weird art style choice, but I really, really enjoyed him hanging out with them all. Okay, okay, so that's all the organization in, in Kingdom Hearts 2. So let's go back to Axel and Syx, because Axel and Syx were childhood friends, and I'm not going to go into their relationship, um, because it gets fleshed out in later games, but the tension that you can clearly see with Axel getting frustrated by Syx's decisions to support Xemnas in the organization and Syx being genuinely upset and betrayed by Axel leaving the organization and going rogue, it's all so well done, especially when you see the jealousy that is held and the contempt held towards Roxas because he realizes that Axel has chosen Roxas over Syx. Like Axel has abandoned this childhood friendship in order to be with this, essentially this kid who reminds him of a more peaceful time and 
especially because you realize that they originally joined the organization together to to fight together and try to take over the organization and to get their hearts back like it's this whole plot that's revealed in later games um but when you when you realize what they've done it's it's really really sweet and it's really well done and so it kind of makes it all the more upsetting when you realize that Sykes didn't get any proper goodbye from Axel like he really didn't so when you see Roxas and Axel's heartfelt reunion in the final mix version of Kingdom Hearts 2, it, it makes me weep not only for Roxas and Axel, but also for Sykes because he's been abandoned in this whole thing. Like the reunion itself makes me weep because it's so good. It's extremely heartfelt and emotional. They exchange this see you later, which is so different compared to the way they parted at the beginning of the game in the first few hours after they fight, where Roxas says see you in the next life. Or no, um, Axel says, see you in the next life. And Roxas says, yeah. And Axel laughs and he's like, just because you have a next life, hinting that Axel has nothing left for him and that he's going to disappear um, because he doesn't see a future for himself. But now, you know, at the end of this game, they say, see you in the next life or, you know, see you later. And Axel says, yeah, right back at you, buddy. And they have this really sweet moment where you realize that Axel truly believes that he will be whole one day and that he hasn't given up hope and that a, that little jaded part of him has been healed a little and it's so well done it's such good growth and it's this it's really bittersweet but there's also a lot of hope there and i really appreciate that um what else is there that i really like with this game um the ending of the game itself it's really really good it ends on such a good note essentially after roxas and roxas after sora and riku or after they defeat Xemnas, they end up on the shores of darkness and they have that exchange where Riku realizes that Sora is never going to leave him behind again and that Riku was still worthy. Um, they end up finding a way home and there's this beautiful letter that I will always adore that Kyrie wrote. Um, it, thinking of it makes me emotional. Just, you know, thinking of you wherever you are, blah, blah, blah. Like, it's just, it's so sweet, the, the sentiment that they all share. Um, but... You know, Sora and Riku actually get to go home for the first time in almost two years. And they're children, and they haven't been home for two years. It just, it gives them some stability and that sense of, of safety when they're reunited with with um, with um Kyrie and Mickey and Donald and Goofy. And then you see that Naminé, who was always the nobody of Kyrie and Roxas, the nobody of Sora, are kind of reunited in a way too, and that they've been validated by their original selves. And that, you know, they're not alone anymore. It's just a really lovely way to end this game. I, I just adore so much about it. It's such a good experience. Obviously there are negatives, but that's not what this is about. <laughs> I'm here to talk about things I like. So yeah, I could probably just ramble all day about this series and about this game in particular. So I, yeah, I think we'll cut it here. Um, I hope you enjoyed this this rambling dive into some of my favorite parts of Kingdom Hearts 2. Um, if you enjoyed it, let me know. Share this with your friends, like it, leave comments. Um, if you would like to see more or have ideas for any other topics, let me know on Tumblr or on Discord or in the comments here. But I think that's a wrap for... 45 minutes of me talking to myself. Um, I hope this was even remotely listenable. I think the next topic is going to be Xenoblade Chronicles, so 
yeah, I hope you're excited for that. That is my favorite game of all time, so I have so much to say, but I got so much nerdier for, for uh, Xenoblade Chronicles because it's just me talking about genetics, and I get really excited. So yeah, that's that.